This is an ABC podcast. Stolen personal health information, including details of sensitive procedures, have been leaked online after Medibank, Australia's largest health insurance provider, refused to pay a ransom. This week on Download This Show, hackers are demanding $1 for each of Medibank's 9.7 million customers. But the government is taking steps to make it impossible for them to get it. Plus, with massive layoffs and features being added and removed on the daily, Twitter is in a state of chaos right now. Are we witnessing the final days of the tweet? And with Facebook also letting people go and Meta's company value plummeting, big questions are being raised about its investment in the metaverse. Is it the way of the future or just Mark Zuckerberg's misguided pipe dream? This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to download this show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. Ray Johnston here. I am back keeping Mark Fennell's seat warm while he's off making even more multi-award winning content, I'm sure. And it is a great pleasure to welcome our guest for today. We have the principal producer and host at CNET, Claire Riley. Welcome. It's good to be here down the wires from the States. It's been a long time since we've been able to chat. Lovely to hear your voice. It's just so nice to hear some Australian (laughs) accents again, I won't lie. (laughs) And we have software developer at Access Informatics, Peter Marks. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks, Ray. Good to talk to you and good to talk to you too, Claire. Now, Medibank hackers, they've began publishing sensitive information and we're not just talking names, addresses, phone numbers, as bad as that would be but details about medical procedures. And this actually includes the identity of 300 people who have accessed a procedure commonly used during abortions. Now, the hackers are demanding a ransom so that they don't release any more of this kind of information, but that looks like it won't be getting paid anytime soon. Going back to the beginning here, Peter, how did this hack occur? Who is reported to be behind it? Well, many banks said that someone gained access to their systems, so they were able to log into internal systems by stealing the login credentials of either an employee or a contractor. Now, normally logins these days require multi-factor authentication. That's additional codes such as something sent via a text message. So you've got to have the phone to be able to log in. Um, maybe biometrics like a fingerprint or a code generated by an authenticator app. And you need both your username and password and this you know, multi-factor thing in order to log in. Medibank has said that they plan to strengthen MFA. So perhaps not all Medibank staff logins had multi-factor authentication turned on at this time, which isn't concerned. Now, as to who's behind it, federal police have said that Russian criminals, some sort of loosely uh, grouped range of people in Russia, are behind the hack. I think right from the start, though, it was said that the hackers were blogging as R-Evil, which is a a Russian um, dark website. So it's not really rocket science to figure out who that is. So what kind of data exactly do the hackers have access to, Claire? 
Well, I mean, this is, you raised it at the top there. It's, you know, I think the thing with hacks is people think name, credit card information, right? Everyone has been for a really long time concerned about, you know, financial information. But the scary thing is when you have someone's name, address, uh, perhaps Medicare information, then suddenly you have a really complete picture and you can do things like committing identity theft. So these kinds of information, uh, pieces of information are often sold on the dark web, which is a, a sort of a, a, an underneath part of the internet where this sort of nefarious activity happens. It's not like you can just, uh, you know, google.com slash dark web. That's not how it works. So it's not really accessible to a lot of the things that you and I would be doing online. But this kind of information when it gets gets sold is, is really problematic because you're talking about identity theft or you're talking about potentially things like blackmail, when you're able to identify individuals who have had really sensitive medical procedures or medical information. I, I was hearing about um, data on people who'd sought therapy for alcohol abuse. That is a very sensitive piece of information. And when you can match that to someone's name, their Medicare number, uh, their, their address, that becomes incredibly problematic and it's understandably incredibly concerning and um, probably leaving a lot of people quite distraught right now. So what do the hackers actually want? Is it just money, Peter? Well, uh, certainly they they were asking for a ransom and uh, Medibank has said that they have declined to pay that ransom. They then went ahead and released uh, samples of the data and, uh, you know, it, it seems that uh, the government is supporting them not uh, paying ransoms. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has announced that the government is considering new laws to actually make it illegal to pay ransoms. I, I think that, you know, maybe controversially, I think there are some scenarios where paying a ransom might be the logical thing to do. I mean, you've already stuffed up. You've, you've allowed a hacker to get into your network and get data. But there's examples for a business where hackers have got in and they've encrypted all of the data inside the company and the company finds that they can't get backups back or their backups are too old. And maybe the cost of paying the ransom is less than the cost of to the cost of the business. But where it doesn't make sense is a case like this where the data has been stolen. So then you go and pay the ransom and then, of course, you know they say, oh, yeah, I've deleted it. But in fact, what they do is they just sell it or just release it anyway. I think that if Australian businesses were known to never pay ransom, then maybe we'd be less of a target for this kind of hacking. Claire, do you think it's the right course of action to never pay hackers? Yeah, I think um, I was I was reading about Claire O'Neill's task force and uh, the moves to potentially make it illegal to pay ransoms. And I think it's such an interesting move. And if it you know, the whole thing about ransomware and hacking is optics, right? The hackers don't necessarily want this information for personal use. They don't have vendettas out against the individual Medibank users um, for whom the privacy has been stolen. Uh, sorry, their information has been stolen. Really, it's about the fear that they can strike and then the ability to steal and then sell this information. It's financial at the end of the day. But if they knew, and if I guess the hacking community, if there's a, you know, a loosely affiliated hacking community <laughs> out there with matching um, wristbands, if if people knew that Australia, by law, companies weren't able to pay ransoms, we become much less of a target. It becomes much easier because they know that a company in the UK, for example, might might be better because they would, you know, be able to get the ransom. I, I completely agree with Peter that in some cases, um, 
We remember that systems in the UK were hacked um, and I believe it was the NHS had its systems Mm. compromised. If you were able to pay some money to get access to your systems again uh, and not have them kind of locked up, then that's a different situation to we have a data set because, yeah, exactly as Peter says, you can say you delete it but you will never know if a hacking group has deleted the information. And quite frankly, why would they? Because there's money to be made from it. I thought it was also quite interesting that um, just just something personal on this, hearing Claire O'Neill call these hackers scumbags, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Don't try and grandstand on this and say, these people haven't done the right thing. You're talking about criminals. Like we we know that criminals don't have a moral code. We know that, you know, people who commit crime aren't doing the right thing. That's not the problem. Um, so I think trying to win points by saying they're scumbags is, is kind of beside the point. I think it's we have to recognise that this is a problem. It's a massively growing problem and Australian companies and organisations and frankly as well individuals, although the individuals aren't to blame here, but organisations and individuals need to do more to secure themselves because this problem isn't going away and saying that the criminals are scumbags kind of misses the point entirely. The victims of this crime have been put in the awful position of kind of being a very public test case where these hackers might just continue to reveal more and more and more information what kind of recourse can they have? You know, would they you know, sue Medibank, for instance, Peter? Well, I think there are already class actions in progress. Yeah, they've been damaged. And I mean, they're, they're, well, all sorts of damage can be done here, uh, apart from, as, as Claire said, you know, just the personal embarrassment of, uh, of public figures having details of their you know, drug treatment or something being released. So yes, I think eventually um, Medibank will have to pay out to compensate people, but, uh, and that cost, that could take years. I mean, it's, yeah, it's horrendous. And as you say, there's no honour amongst thieves. That's a myth. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And with every day that passes, Twitter descends into somehow even more chaos. And notably since last episode, the pay-to-play blue check feature is now available Anyone can pay to look like they are verified without any actual verification having occurred. There have been immediate ramifications to this, it's fair to say. Peter, what is happening in the world of the blue ticks? Yeah, well, the blue tick on Twitter used to mean that you were verified to be who you claim to be. So it was given to public figures uh, such as politicians, celebrities and major businesses. And the blue tick gave people status. So Musk was more aware of this than most people. He, of course, is looking for ways to switch Twitter from relying on purely advertising dollars, which can vanish if the platform becomes controversial, to a mix of advertising and some sort of subscription income. His brilliant idea was to charge $8 US a month for the blue tick, but it hasn't all gone to plan. I don't know. He, he, did he talk to no one? Did he? Did he ask? <laughs> did, you know? Did he think what? How could this be abused? This is the kind of thing that uh, you would think. So the the fatal flaw is that um, fake accounts immediately appeared that posed as a whole lot of people, BP, Mark Zuckerberg, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Tony Blair, they all had blue ticks. These fake accounts had blue ticks, so they looked like the real person. Uh, Republican candidate Carrie Lake with a blue tick, 
conceded Arizona in the midterm elections. Wow. And that disinformation stayed up on Twitter for eight hours. I guess uh, Musk had mm. sacked the uh, the team that would have normally looked at these things. A fake pharmaceutical company uh, pretending to be Eli Lilly with a blue tick announced that insulin will be free and their share price dropped sharply. But I think perhaps the most damaging of all of these stories is that Marmite New Zealand purchased a blue tick for <laughs> Vegemite for real and tweeted that Marmite has always been better and we all know this. So clearly Elon and his advisors have not thought through those changes and they had to roll that back. Twitter has quite famously laid off around 50% of its staff at the moment. Claire, who is left at Twitter at the moment? Is it still even functional? Look, it's it's it feels like it's a real struggle over there at the moment. I just got to say, though, on the Marmite point, as someone who <laughs> spends a lot of money to buy Vegemite in, uh, in America, I saw it in my local grocer for $10 and it was listed as Vegemite sauce. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, dark times, dark times over on the Vegemite steaks, but uh, that Very personally funny. offends me. I saw the Eli Lilly tweet, though, that wiped $16 billion off Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of uh, insulin, wiped $16 billion off their market cap. So this is not a small issue for Elon and it's it's going to cost him potentially a lot of money. But in terms of uh, how it's actually functioning at Twitter, I mean, the layoffs are huge. Yeah. Here in San Francisco, they're a huge employer um, and there are actual conversations about what happens when you lay off that many people? What does it do to the city? Uh, it's it's really mm. concerning, but it's also really concerning for the security of the site. So there's a number of factors here at play. One, um, just the usability of the site. We're not talking about, I mean, maybe some of those people, every job loss is really difficult, but I mean, there are a lot of job losses happening right now and potentially some of them could have been in non-essential services. But when you're talking about engineers, there's no communications team at Twitter anymore. So so you can't get a comment from them. The engineers who keep the site running, um, that is a major problem because if you don't have the the bodies in the seats to be able to do that work, then the site can start to break down. And it's sort of like I'm starting to see this kind of, not zombification, but it's kind of limping along, right? I'll, I'll click on something. I was looking at Great British Bake Off reactions the other night um, because I care deeply about that show. No spoilers. Likewise. And Oh, such a good show. It's so wholesome. Um, Highly recommend. So, oh, it's for, for our times, it's very needed. But I went to look at some tweets and suddenly I'm getting all these random tweets that aren't associated with GBBO. So that was weird. Uh, there's rumours today and reports that two-factor authentication um, has started to break down. So there's a big warning for people, don't log out if you're logged into Twitter because if you try to log back in, the, the service that sends that two-factor notification, um, like Peter talked about at the top of the show to help you log in, that service has broken. So you can go into your account and print out a spare one-time code. It's probably worth doing that for Twitter users. That's under your security and privacy settings. So things like that, the breakdown of the site, um, this is a really, I mean, aside from the memes that we're all going to miss out on, this is an important site for things like marginalized, vo marginalized voices in the journalism community. You know, uh, it is a site that is particularly popular in um, whole parts of the world because it's not really bandwidth intensive. So it's a site that can be used on 2G. It's a site that are, that's used by a lot of people, not just dank edgelords who are posting <laughs> crypto memes. Uh, so it's, it's concerning when something like this starts to break. 
Now, we have head twit, as he has called himself, Elon Musk, being called out by staff and by Twitter's own fact check service for posting at the moment false information about how Twitter is working as well. Is he being intentionally obtuse about this or does he genuinely believe in what he's doing? I'm just at a state right now where I don't know if this was his plan all along. Is he trying to tank Twitter, Peter? Well, he's put a lot of money in and he's got other investors and they've gone into debt. So they've got a huge debt to service. I can't see that he would want to actually tank it. He he, he does have a big runway. I mean, he's supposed to be worth $200 billion, so he can muck around for a while. But if he annoys users and advertisers, there's a risk that they will go somewhere else. But look, Musk is no fool, uh, despite his jokey attitude in public. He's built two real complicated profitable business, Tesla and SpaceX. But his ideas about fixing the unprofitable Twitter, and remember that Twitter has never made much money. In fact, most most quarters they lose money. His two ideas, charging for blue ticks, that hasn't worked. Getting rid of bots, don't know how that's going. Presumably not very well. In fact, I'm sure there's a lot of bots who have now blue ticks. <laughs> I think he was right to cut costs. After all, you know, he paid too much. He um, he had to pay the, was it $48 billion? And uh, after he'd made that offer, the, the valuation dropped to $30 billion. He did try to pull out of it, but, you know, he, he failed to So it, because of the penalties he'd agreed to. So, you know, he's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see any reason why he would deliberately tank it. But he did say in a staff meeting that, look, it may well go bankrupt. Imagine how his investors feel and how the banks feel. It's just, it's crazy stuff. One of my favourite tweets that I've seen out of this, one of my favourite analogies about this situation, rather, Uh, was that being on Twitter right now is like playing the violin on the Titanic, except we're also making fun of the iceberg and the iceberg is getting genuinely mad. Is this the final (laughs) days of Twitter that we are witnessing? Because there is this general feeling of users on the platform that it's not going to be around for much longer. Everyone is you know, downloading all of their Twitter history, you know, which is taking quite a while, mind you, and looking at alternatives. You know, lots of people are moving over to Mastodon, which has mixed reviews on its usability and, and features as a Twitter replacement. And there's even been some calls for the revival of Tumblr, Will you two stay on Twitter until the end? Do you think it is the end? So hard to know, right? I mean, it's... If this is the end, it's it feels kind of like uh, Tyler Durden looking out the window and marvelling <laughs> at the collapse of the world because it's really entertaining. Um, I've seen so many people sort of say, all right, if this is the end of Twitter, let's pull out the best tweets we've ever seen. And I, just the nostalgia for, you know, the ability to write a joke in 140 characters <laughs> is just timeless. Uh, there's been so much good stuff. I think for, for a lot of us, I don't know how you guys feel, but I really started my professional career career on Twitter. It really yeah. helped me build up a name as a journalist. Um, I've made a lot of friends there. There's people that I met on the internet through Twitter that I haven't met anywhere else. But I think it's also time to recognise when a place becomes toxic is, I mean, are we 
using social media the same way we were 10 years ago. I will miss it if I leave. I will miss it as a source to be able to find people, chase stories. I love that it's really a democratised uh, platform for everyone to take up the same amount of space on your screen, whether they're the president um, or whether they're just <laughs> your friend who lives down the road. So I love that about it. Don't know if I'll switch to Mastodon. I've definitely found myself using Instagram and TikTok way more though. So that's where a lot of my time is going these days. Look, I think Twitter is very strong. It's got hundreds of millions of, of monthly active users at the moment and that that's not something that's going to just disappear overnight. But I think everyone is looking around at, at other options. You know, the network effect is very strong. The effect of, of a large number of people in one place is, is non-linear. It's exponential. It's It could be factorial where... The number of people, as it goes up into large numbers, you've got huge opportunities to network with other people. I've started using Mastodon. It's uh, six years old. It's open source. Rather than being centralised, it's federated. So you can join a local server but still see um, uh, toots, as they're called, from other instances. <laughs> it does look a bit like Twitter used to look uh, and you can follow people or hashtags. And each instance has its own code of contact, conduct and moderation policy. So there can be different sort of areas within that federation. If a server becomes objectionable, you can you can block it. There's a, actually quite a genius um, kind of verification system for people who have domain names. Uh, you can put a bit of HTML on your website and that proves you have control of the domain and therefore you are to some extent identifiable. Um, your Tumblr is still going, but you know, remember... Uh, you know, Twitter seems strong now, but there was a time when MySpace, Yahoo, Alta Vista, <laughs> and Gorka all seemed oh, wow. immortal, Gorka. and they've all pretty much disappeared. Um, I still go to Tumblr from time to time to see what Stuart Gary is saying about space <laughs> and cats, but I don't find much there. Look, at this point, Mastodon is growing very quickly, and the rapid growth is causing problems. Um, there's going to be bigger issues with moderation and I don't know how they're going to pay for it. They're, they're funded through donations and some sponsorship, but it's not enough for them to scale up. So they've got 6.6 .6 million accounts, I read, at the moment, and that's going up sharply. So there could be some teething problems there. Yeah, and it's not an easy uh, kind of onboarding process for Mastodon. I think the thing with Twitter is you don't necessarily need to be a tech head, but when you start to talk about instances, Peter, and federated networks, mm. I think a lot of people might switch off. The best example I've heard is that it's kind of like email, right? I can send you an email if I'm on Gmail and you might be on Hotmail. Uh, each of those platforms looks different. They might have different ways that they kind of advertise towards you in that platform, but it's essentially a kind of a system that all talks to each other. But yeah, I still haven't signed up to Mastodon because it's sort of like, oh, I really need to do that. But which instance am I going to sign up to? Am I still Australian? Should I be on the Australian one? Yeah, or should I a different one? Oh, gosh, there's so many choices. So, yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult one, but I didn't ever think we'd have to leave Twitter. Same, same. I've got so many good memories on Twitter. Actually met my husband on Twitter. So I wow. hope that we don't have to oh. say goodbye. It would be sad if we did. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston. I'm filling in for Mark Fennell for the next three weeks. And I am joined by Claire Riley, who is the principal producer and host at CNET, and Peter Marks, software developer at Access Informatics. And it's not just Twitter saying goodbye to staff at the moment. Meta has been laying off people too, specifically at Facebook. Claire, can you walk us through what's led to these layoffs? Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, 
in contrast to the way Elon Musk was describing layoffs because the site's losing money, speaking about Twitter, uh, Mark Zuckerberg struck a particularly contrite tone when he apologised about layoffs. About, I think it was 13% of the workforce had to be laid off. It was the largest in its history, about 11,000 employees worldwide um, from a total headcount of 87,000. So that is a big chunk of Meta's workforce and it's largely down to weaker than expected results. So it's been a kind of a combination of inflation, which is the thing we're hearing about on international markets right now. Inflation, um, the post-pandemic growth not really being what it expected it was expected to be. And of course, Meta has made a lot of big bets in new areas, specifically around the metaverse, this concept that you can put on a headset and suddenly be in a completely different digital world that you live out your life in. Um, Of course, there is discussion around, uh, you know, new social platforms like TikTok and whether whether Facebook is losing users to those newer platforms. Facebook is still incredibly strong and it still has a lot in terms of ad sales, but there is, it's a competitive environment, right? And how much can they convince people, you know, when you have to put on a headset to join this (laughs) new world, the barrier to entry is quite significant. There was a report uh, recently that even some of Meta's own employees weren't unpacking their headsets and they weren't kind of, they might have tried them once and then not really dug back into the metaverse again because it was just not really interesting to them. I don't really love the look of it either. That's just a personal thing. But yeah, it's, um, it's about finances and it's about them not really doing as well as they thought they would. Have either of you actually tried out Zuck's Metaverse? I haven't. I, I haven't used it in a headset. I've seen the videos um, and uh, it's hard to know in the videos what's real and what's a mock-up. They've always been a bit disappointing. I mean, you would expect them to be kind of mocked up. Zuckerberg says it's a ways off, which uh, means that he knows it. You know, even though they've spent a reported $36 billion US on development, it's still not looking very impressive. I have used Google's VR technologies over the years, but look, the elephant in the room is that we know that Apple is working on what will probably be the highest quality VR system. The VR they ship now is viewed by holding up a phone or an iPad, and it works very well. Um, It's just not a great sort of user experience. But there's rumours that they have sleek, high-resolution glasses uh, that will be coming as soon as next year. They won't be cheap, though. But look, Meta has a poor record with hardware. They launched a phone in 2013. Do you remember that? And that failed I do. really quickly. I think they were $99 US and they got uh, reduced down to $0.99 cents and they still didn't sell. Oof. It was HTC hardware. They also launched a home speaker video conference device called the Facebook Portal or the Meta Portal in 2018 and they cancelled it in June this year. Uh, regular listeners to download this show might remember that uh, I was on the program when we talked about that product launched and I declared it dead already in, in um, 2018. I just don't trust and I think a lot of people don't want to have Facebook having a microphone and a camera in their home, let alone their bedroom. So, you know, that, that they are trying with this metaverse thing. They've renamed the company to Meta and there's a big risk there if they can't deliver or I, I think what might happen is that they just get leapfrogged when Apple releases their product, which will just work better and, and have more privacy focus to it. But, you know, I do look Look forward to VR. I think um, I think having meetings in VR will be a good thing, uh, a great way to do it as long as the headset is light and comfortable. And of course, the big application surely must be porn. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> Someone had to say it. <laughs> yeah. Every major yeah. technological advancement that we have seen in the last few decades, I think it's safe to say probably since the 90s, has been because of the pornography industry. I've said this over and over on this show. And that is all the time that we have today, unfortunately. Big thank you to Claire Riley. Pleasure to have you. Oh, it was so good to be back and to chat to you both. It's um, I felt like I was right there in the ABC studios. Oh, wonderful. And as always, fantastic to have you on board. Peter Marks, thank you. Thanks, Ray. Great to talk to you. Now, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.